Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview policymakers, entrepreneurs, uh, business executives to talk about our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, today with me, not in the studio, but we're actually in Brooklyn, uh, New York, offsite uh, at the New Lab, uh, which is located at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, it is a frontier tech uh, incubator. Super exciting stuff happens here, and I'm with the CEO, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. No, thanks for having me. For this, for this wonderful um, place and also um, having this conversation with me because I know you've had such a diverse range of experiences across various sectors and companies and, and yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. No, I'm glad you guys are uh, interested to come back and we enjoyed hosting you last time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so would you mind just giving us a very quick overview of New Lab, how it's different from some of the other incubator programs that we've heard about and... and uh, what brings you here? Yeah, yeah. I think um, certainly the first piece is is that there's not a perfect kind of summary name for what we are. Like we get thrown as generators or incubators or shared office space, but we actually don't fit perfectly into any of those definitions. Um, the first piece is you actually said program, and that's a good place to start, which is that our entrepreneurs are based here 365 days a year. It's not a 12-week program, a 16-week program. Um, it's not an accelerator. It's actually that they come here and they're based here and part of our community and so receive year-round benefit, year-round support versus just a sprint, like a period where you get that kind of support ecosystem. So maybe if you allow me to, like taking a step back to explain what New Lab is, because you mentioned uh, that we're a generator, an accelerator, or an incubator, yeah. any of those terms, we, we have components that align with that, but there's actually a lot of what we do that makes us unique versus that. Um, so if we take a step back, we're, we're based in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, 300 acres, private land. Uh, it's leased to, to the Navy over a long-term lease by the city. Um, and so for a starting point, we're situated on a 300-acre test bed where you can actually develop prototypes here at New Lab and test them in this entire ecosystem around us. Um, we have self-driving cars being tested here in the Navy Yard, but they're not tested in New York. Uh, we have pipe inspection devices under the buildings. We have rooftop farms. We have solar-powered boys in the East River. So you have access to this entire landscape that is a key part of the assets that um, the community here benefits from. And our building specifically, this is a 40,000 square foot building that the Navy used starting in 1903 um, for building the engines and machinery for large battleships. The USS Missouri came out of here, the USS uh, Arizona. Um, but at the peak of World War II, you had 60,000 people working here in the Navy Yard. Um, but after the close of World War II, it actually declined pretty rapidly. Um, and we got approached by the Bloomberg administration who said, what would you do with this building if you won a long-term lease on the building, like an RFP? And so we had to think about, like, what would we do with this 40,000 square feet if you had the, the ability to transform this building? And for those of you who haven't been here, we're sitting in a space that has 90-foot ceilings, um, gantries from like the, the turn of the century. It, it's a pretty unique space, as you yeah. guys might see on the website or if you've ever visited in person. Um, and so David and Scott, who are the two founders, they they had an experience in New York similar to like what you have with single people. Like I have. I have probably 20 friends who are single, and they all tell me that there's no single people in New York, right? Um, and you, you always come to that conclusion of like, but I know all of you, like how do you not find each other? And it's certainly right. a simplified example, but what we heard, heard from entrepreneurs in frontier technology, whether it was software or hardware, was I'm the only entrepreneur in New York who's working on frontier, frontier tech. Frontier tech, right. 
And that was despite the fact that we knew dozens of them. It's just that they didn't have a center of gravity. They didn't have a community, a convening location. They didn't have anything that kind of bound them together. They were just in office space around the city for two or three people from downtown Manhattan up into the Bronx. But there wasn't a way to bring them together, to support each other, to trade IP, to, to find the conclusions that are beneficial on one product or very relevant to a completely different use case somewhere else. And so with the opportunity with the RFP, that was what we presented. We said, we're going to build a home, a community, a center of gravity for entrepreneurs from around the world to come to Brooklyn and build frontier tech companies that do something positive for the world overall. Um, and so when we opened, we had 100 entrepreneurs here building 30-something different companies. The average company comes in here with four or five people, but there's a range. Um, and if you fast forward today, we have 750 entrepreneurs here now, um, wow. 136 different companies being built. And in the first two and a half years, we had 380 million in liquidity events. So the largest was Jump was acquired by Uber, um, but we had six other acquisitions. During that same time frame, the average valuation went from 8 million to north of 130 million per company. Um, and we had five companies that were housed here and built here that um, peaked above $400 million valuations. And so we just saw significant amount of progress, improved likelihood of success, um, and a better support ecosystem for doing something that in itself is, is just fraught with danger, right? Like building a company is a 90% likelihood of failure. Building it in frontier technology, like launching cube satellites or 3D printing or the future of quantum computing, like right. adds even more risk to that. Totally. Um, yeah. And so the fact that you've seen these early signs of success uh, certainly validated for us that this type of approach to development of community, co-working, um, had grand potential. Um, and so we can, I'll pause for a moment, but we can get into like where that evolved from there because our business today isn't purely just co-working and has expanded a lot since then. Of course. Uh, so you mentioned Frontier Tech and, and I know that's a huge component of what New Lab is about. Would you mind giving us some examples of some of the membership companies that you have here? Uh, I, I know Farm Shelf, which is basically growing vegetables on, on, on shelves and all, like, would love to hear uh, some of the examples yeah. from you. Yeah, it's a little cheesy, but we say it's like the Noah's Ark of Frontier Tech. Because there's, um, <laughs> there's literally like one or two in every category you can think of. Um, so we have quantum computing companies here working on everything from chip fab to error correction through to uh, additional applications for quantum like, um, like password protection and communication systems. Um, we have biofabrication, so there's people like Modern Meadow, they grow leather here from collagen. So it's vegan leather produced in the lab, can be grown with any color or design you're looking for, but without the, the, uh, the involvement of actually an animal, that it takes it a step for kind of earlier and actually the cells of what creates leather hide and recreates that um, from a biofabrication perspective. Um, we have Terraform upstairs. Um, they grow furniture from mycelium, the early cells of mushrooms. Um, and so there's a range of biofabrication companies here. You mentioned AgTech, so Farm Shelf is here, seven foot vertical farming units um, that use 96% less water and soil than traditional farming to produce the same kind of leafy greens and tomatoes and carrots and things that are used by restaurants here in New York. If you guys have a salad tonight, the average head of lettuce travels 1800 miles to get to New York City. 
um, these are kitchens that are producing that same produce in their you know feet from the kitchen versus hundreds of miles away so um, the footprint there is obviously uh, from an environmental perspective certainly a lot more positive um, then you have all forms of advanced mobility Optimus Ride is developing self-driving cars here Jump developed their pedal assist electric bike here Tarform is here they um, created an electric motorcycle that is definitely one of the sexier products that's been <laughs> built here um, Civilized Cycles that's developed electric bikes for families Clip, which has a, a product that transforms a regular, like legacy bike, into an electric bike. Right. So a lot of different mobility-focused um, companies, and we're not all only hardware. Like when we opened, we were 100% hardware uh, startups because there's seven million dollars worth of um, prototyping equipment here. We have wood shops and metal shops and 3D printers and Digifab labs, and you have um, textile labs and electric boards and everything you need to develop the first gen, the prototype of your product. And so that attracted a lot of hardware people to begin with. But what happened over the last two and a half years was the community became so strong with such incredible minds um, that people wanted to be here even if they weren't hardware focused. And so today, 40% of the companies are pure software plays. Um, folks like Barag, who started his company Pienzo here, which is an AI software suite for statisticians to manage AI around their data sets. Um, he started with a couple people, there's now about 15 of them here, and that's pure software. There's no hardware component or involvement there either. Um, so there's a lot of different companies doing, um, doing a lot of different things, but all with two things in common. One is they're utilizing advanced technology, frontier tech, the bleeding edge, however you like to call it. Whatever was cutting edge when you and I started talking today will be different by the time we finish. And this community is, is focused on what is, what is at that finishing point. Like what is the technology at the end of every day that they can be utilized, uh, utilizing. And then the second piece is that we only bring in companies that we're, we'd be proud to help grow. Um, we had a really interesting application last month and we only accept 9% of the applicants. So Ooh. 1,400 companies have applied to be here. Um, we've accepted 137 so far. Um, we had one that had developed, I think it was a spin out of Lockheed Martin that had developed a really interesting new approach to mis missile guidance systems. More accurate, more trackable, more manageable. Um, but for us, like, I don't know how much pride we'd have to like be involved with that um, and also right. with, you know, a lack of vision of how that might be used in ways that might, be po might not be positive. So we've really focused on a community that utilizes frontier tech, but also something that we're proud of developing and helping to support. But it seems that you guys are not really rushing to get those companies sold or like let them get acquired because it seems that so much of the Silicon Valley and, and the tech scene today is about this kind of fail fast mentality. It's like you expect ROI to you know in, in two to three years, and, and and by contrast, New Lab is really about focusing on those frontier tech, which probably would require much longer time horizon for a company to mature, and, and there's much. Uh, more risk, riskier than, than uh, like you said. So why have you chosen to focus on those frontier tech? You know, even given given the fact that it's very less likely yeah. that you realize those. So I think there's there's two really important points there that are worth double down and double clicking on. Like the first is that when we developed a community, we focused on talent and nothing else. Like it was, are they the right talent working in frontier tech on something that we'd be proud to support? We didn't didn't look at can we invest in them. Are, are they going to have quick liquidity? Do we think they'll have a, a substantial revenue growth over the next kind of set of years? It actually wasn't purely focused on can we make money off of these entrepreneurs. 
It was, are they talented? And are they people we'd be proud to have in the community? And so there's a lot of examples of, um, there's Honeybee Robotics is here. They've been on two Mars missions. Uh, they work pretty much solely funded and contracted by NASA. Um, they've currently deployed a robot in space that's taking samples of moving comets and will return back to Earth in 2030. Um, you can't work with them. We can't make money off of them in any way. You can't invest in them. We can't use them in our innovation studios because what they're working on is so privileged and confidential and their funding is already secured. But to have 50 of the country's best space tech engineers and robotics engineers in our building has then attracted four or five other key startups that are space tech focused. And so that's that first differentiation point is a lot of those, you know, you mentioned accelerators and generators and incubators at the start. Their focus is on build companies you can invest in and make money on from the early stage through or that you can sell something, a program or, or whatever it is that you generate revenue through. Our atomic element is the strength and quality of the community. The whole thing falls apart if you're welcoming average entrepreneurs and average technologists. So that resulted in a very different makeup. There are companies being built here that you should never invest in. They'll never make a dollar. <laughs> like they're just not that type of person. They're incredible R&D, incredible academics or incredible technologists that may just not have that drive that's commercial. It's the same like I have friends who are some of the best artists I've ever seen but you know that what drives them is not the commercial side of the business and so you know that they're never going to be selling paintings for hundreds of millions of dollars because it's not what gets them out of bed. We've built a community of the people who are more passionate about the technology than necessarily finding ways to commercialize it. Um, so I think that was the, the first kind of point on how you develop the community overall. Um, then the second part is that w what's expanded is there's four major ways we make money. The first we found very quickly was successful, which is you charge people rent to be here. They pay for supplies and they pay for um, access to the shops and they pay for their desks and their offices. Um, we've been 96% occupied since we opened. There's a waiting list for offices and desks. You can wait anywhere for three to nine months to get a desk in the community. So that side of the business was already highly high, high performing and, and well tested. But what came out of it were three other three lines of business and opportunity that within the first couple of years, we just noticed these signals and said, there's something more here than just uh, a community and real estate revenue. Um, the first was the, the investment side. The average company valuation going from eight to north of 130 million over a quick period of time was definitely eye-opening. Um, 380 million in liquidity events in the first 24 months, very eye-opening. Companies coming in here like Jump, they were called social bicycles when they came here. They prototyped and developed a pedal assist bike here, had two other new lab companies help them with the product. Um, Voltaic built the solar array and Pienzo built the AI behind it. Um, then we helped them get a pilot approval for downtown Brooklyn by bringing Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, excuse me, here to try one of the bikes. Um, and then you end up 20 months later, Uber acquires them for $260 million. So those stories, those experiences were very eye-opening that there was a venture opportunity here. So basically, if I invest in every single company here uh, in New Lab, I would, I would be pretty much guaranteed to make a yes, <laughs> return. And then as an index, it performed well. <laughs> yeah, right? as an yeah. index, the, the New Lab index. Totally. This and so is awesome. that led yeah. us to invest. We've invested in 29 of the 137 companies. Um, and we've done so with a depth of diligence that is, is beyond what 
the typical VC kind of model allows. Exactly. The average VC spends 10 to 12 hours with an entrepreneur before investing in their company or declining an investment. We spend 10 to 12 hours with these entrepreneurs every day for 365 days of the year. Um, and not only that, but we get exposure every time I do a tour for a corporate CEO or we bring a government representative through here. You get to see what they're interested in. And if you introduce them to a company and time after time everybody is interested in Farm Shelf as an example, you start to realize maybe there's something there and you should invest in them. And then also, like we just invested, the most recent company we invested in was a quantum computing startup. I'm not an expert in quantum computing, not even close to that. But we have a community of 137 different companies, many of which are focused on quantum, plus a network that those companies give us access to. So when we do diligence on a potential investment, we're able to utilize this web of expertise, plus a depth of exposure to them, um, and a day-to-day -day understanding of who they are and how they work. Um, I can tell you which startups work on the weekends, who's here at night. Like You get just a ton of day-to-day -day insight into, um, into the progress they're making and who you should bet on. And so that's the second of kind of four of the business opportunities that's come out of this community. Yeah. Um, b before we dive into the other business opportunities, but I, th I think there's so much information in just this point that you were making and you uh, mentioned that here it's all about frontier tech, but in fact you before uh, coming to New Lab, you yourself are not a frontier tech guy. You're no. not a quantum computing guy. You worked at Expedia and Airbnb and uh, Google X. So would you, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your experience back then and how yeah. that kind of differentiated from the sort of culture we're seeing here at New Lab compared to like you know Silicon Valley and yeah. No, you bet. Um, yeah, I think most people claim you're going to have two to three chapters to your career, where your career is going to shift industry and maybe even role type. Um, for me, I'm kind of in the second of those uh, those major shifts. Um, the first segment of my career was all around online travel and e-commerce. Um, so I came out of hotel, the hotel school at Cornell um, three months after 9-11. I had three job offers. All three of them got rescinded. Like the industry just froze, <laughs> right? Like how are, is the hotel industry going to survive something as catastrophic as 9-11, especially just two months, three months after it? Like there wasn't a lot of confidence in hiring. And so I went and found another job at a company in Vegas called Travelscape, um, which was pretty closely, just before I started, acquired by USA Networks and became part of Barry Diller's IAC empire and a part of Expedia. And so my three jobs after that where I spent nine years at Expedia, then I spent five years at a company called Jetsetter where I helped a team build it from the early stage all the way through to acquisition when we sold it to, to TripAdvisor. And I was the CEO when we sold it. Um, then I joined Airbnb in California, um, and they had recruited me to help expand their business from just cities into leisure markets. And you were one of the first people who, who, who joined Airbnb, right? Uh, no, I was, there was a couple hundred people there when I got there, but I was the first person they brought on board to build the global team around leisure. So you had, like, they were big in New York, but not big in Cape Cod or, or Nantucket or, or the Hamptons or the Jersey Shore. And that's a completely different beast, a completely different demand uh, source, a completely different source of supply and a type of supply. And so I came on, on board to build like a business within the business, but focused on winning leisure markets that they hadn't seen the same level of kind of viral growth and penetration into. Got you. And so that was the closure of my first chapter, which was like e-commerce and travel. And the good news through that was over time, my expertise in travel became less valuable than my skill set that people started to approach me to build companies and lead companies 
around a range of different topics, not just in travel. And it was the f that was the turning point when you realize you've developed a large enough skill set that it eclipses industry. It, it eclipses whether you know a lot about the music industry or the entertainment industry or the food industry. And it starts to become, he has a set of skills that we can transfer into any different application. And so that's where I was approached by Alphabet, by the recruiting team at Google X. And they were starting to build plans to commercialize um, what was called Project Chauffeur. And that was the R&D project, uh, developing self-driving cars for Google. Um, and so that was the example of, we want you to come help commercialize and lead the creation of a new business, which ended up being Waymo, the self-driving car company at Google, um, to lead strategy and operations and business development and partnerships. But without any expertise in mobility, no understanding of autonomous vehicles, but a respect for the skill set and not the topic of, uh, or expertise around the topic. So you've always done business development per se. So yeah, really curious about uh, this, especially business development within tech. Because one of my friends uh, who worked at Google this past summer, and he was saying like, you know, in Google, engineer is king. You know, it's all about you have to have a technical background and all that stuff. Yeah. So would love to hear comments on on his opinion and also how you define those kind of soft skills in terms of you know in in, in yeah. non-technical skills in, in the tech role. Yeah, it took, I mean, certainly like you can imagine going into an environment like Google X without, I don't have any engineering background, I don't know how to program, I'm not an expert in LiDAR development or robotics, like I definitely walked in there, A, thinking, do they have the right person? Like why the hell have they hired me for this? Yeah. There must be people with, you know, topical expertise <laughs> that would be more appropriate. It was certainly the first conclusion. Um, and the second was just fear of like, how am I going to contribute? Like, how do I add value to exactly. this organism? And what I quickly, well, not quickly, but what I found over three years and what was probably the most valuable conclusion for me in my career was that, um, that what, you th what you think you have, you always undervalue, and you really need to understand what other people think um, uh, what's needed for success. I'm kind of butchering that. But I, what it ends up being is that what you're good at, you think is quite simple. And what I, how I review what you're good at might be that I think it's incredibly complex. And so when I got to Project Chauffeur, what I quickly found out was there was a ton of incredibly talented engineers from a software and hardware perspective. But what there wasn't as much strength in was leadership around business and product development and commercialization of technology. And so that's why they were bringing people like me in, bringing Kevin Vosen in as general counsel to Kedra for public policy and PR and brand. Dan Chu for leading product. Like they were building a team of, of people who could do more than just develop the technology. So that was the first piece that like what I do is I operate. I help build and scale companies. I help lead and manage and organize. And although to me that seems really simple and I feel like I could teach you, you know, sit on a flight for three hours and I could probably give you the download on how to do it. A a lot of people make it look pretty difficult, and what I consider quite simple, a lot of people seem to find really challenging in regards to leadership and, and managing companies as they scale. And the second part is the people who are experts in engineering find what I do incredibly daunting and scary. They look at it and say, like, I, I could never do that. I don't know how he does or she does. And so you need to, it's part of building confidence in yourself is understanding that, like, you might be the drummer in the band, that doesn't mean that you're less valuable than the guitarist. They're completely different skill sets, and you right. need both. 
And if you have a band of six guitarists, it's not going to work out. Right, um, right. And just so you think drumming might be simplified compared to playing guitar, like actually the guitarist may look at your skill set drumming and think it's it's just as daunting as what they've been capable of achieving. So w w what exactly w was uh, your job like back then and also today here at, at New Lab? What, what's your day-to-day -day like? Because I'm reading uh, Mike Isaac's uh, Super Pumped, which is a battle for Uber, which basically... Yeah. Uh, he talks. He writes about this guy Emil Michael, who is the yep. the business chief devel business development guy uh, at, at Uber, which is basically the deal maker. You know, who really goes out there to make deals with people. So was, was that something that, that you were you were? Are we talking about here or Google X? Yeah, it was both. Both. I would say yeah. Yeah. So I think um, if there's an important point in your career development where you decide whether you're going to be a specialist or a generalist. If you're going to be a specialist, then really. 80 to 90 percent of your time and your effort and the skills you develop and the tasks you're exposed to probably need to be in service of that specialization. If you want to be a CTO one day, um, spending a lot of time understanding marketing probably isn't the best use of your time. Like You may want to understand the basics, but really you want to be a chief technology officer, which means like the technical abilities you have and the understanding of the technical landscape that you're applying it to is more important. Or you decide you want to be a generalist. I want to be a CEO one day, which actually means you need a pretty good understanding of all the different components. Like you need to understand finance to manage a CFO. You don't need to know it better than the CFO, but you need to know enough to be able to manage the CFO. Um, they kind of say enough, enough to get into a little bit of trouble, but not too much trouble. Um, and so, but when you're on that generalist path, you have to start somewhere. You can't just start out of college as a CEO. You build your base, you build your value and your expertise in something to begin with. And that's why you have CEOs who are technically led or product led or finance led or legal led or public policy led. Is That's where they started, but they learned enough about the other aspects of business to eventually become a GM and then eventually end up in CEO positions. And so that's a long way of answering your question, which is my foundation came from BD and partnerships. Like I started Expedia, literally, I. I went door to door and signed up the first hotels at, um, for New York City on Expedia. Never heard of Expedia. I showed up at hotels and said, would you like to sell your hotel rooms online? And then I went from there to managing people who sell Expedia to managing the teams that manage the people that like, and you just grow your hierarchy. But my, my expertise I developed over those nine years was sales, partnership, negotiation, BD. Then I took that, chat, that chip stack I developed, that set of skills and expertise, and I traded it in for a job in an early stage startup that would allow me to start getting exposed to all the other aspects of running a business in a way that A, a big company usually won't let you. Like big companies want to build experts. They want you to be the best salesperson, the best program manager, the best engineer. They don't want you to be the best generalist typically because that's not the best use of the talent they have. They want you to focus on one part of the process. With an early stage startup, Jeff said it was 15 people or so when I started, you don't have that, that luxury. Like everybody has to do more than what they're com comfortable or capable of because that's just how it works at early stage companies. And so the result of that is you get exposed to a ton of stuff you haven't in the past. In nine years at Expedia, I never met an engineer. Um, five years at Jetsetter, like I was helping review how, how the iPad fl flow works. How do we design this? How do you design that? Building accounting systems, structuring our first employment agreement. Like, you typically would have a team of legal people doing that, but if you're 10 people building a company, guess what? Someone's got to figure out how to do it. 
And that's why those early stage experiences, when combined with a platform of kind of skill development and expertise, end up being very valuable. Like my career would not be where it is if it wasn't for that two punch, like that two hit, right? The left right, which was hit, hit, hit it first with corporate experience, big company experience, developing skills and expertise that you can trade in for the next opportunity, but then quickly getting into an early stage environment where I was able to, um, to develop a much wider net of understanding of how businesses operate. So, so you talk about entrepreneurship, and I, uh, and obviously New Lab hosts entrepreneurs who you know are all about changing the world and doing things in the very long term. But yeah. I also wanted to, uh, I also kind of have a sense that many people are kind of going about entrepreneurship these days, kind of in the wrong way. Like a lot of people, instead of, I guess young people, instead of saying, "Oh, this is a problem that I want to address," and I'm using entrepreneurship as a means to an end, but not, but rather than doing that. Instead, they would label themselves as entrepreneurs and then you know, try to hop on different projects. But it's all about you know, getting involved in the tech scene and, and quickly becoming, you know, build something that could be quickly acquired by, by, by another company yeah. and, and liquidate and all that stuff. So, and, and, and I think a lot of tech journalists obviously write about the, the relatively toxic culture that, that we're seeing these days. It's sort of an oversupplied industry of just entrepreneurs. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on entrepreneurship. What do you think? is really the kind of entrepreneurship that we would need a society today? Uh, yeah. What some of the good qualities that you look for when you uh, seek entrepreneurship? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's incredible to see the rise of how appealing being an entrepreneur is. Like, that yeah. more people now come out of universities and colleges and they don't want to go work for a big corporate, they don't want to work for anyone, they want to go be an entrepreneur and build, exactly. build companies. And I think that's exciting and, and certainly has had a lot of obviously positive impact in my career and what we're doing at New Lab. Um, but it's similar to saying like, I'm gonna move to LA and be an actress or an actor, that you can look at the successful ones and be like, oh, I want that. Like, I wanna be on a TV sitcom or in movies and I wanna be rich and famous um, and be a Hollywood celebrity. But for every one of those, there's 99 who have tried and failed. Like you, and the entrepreneurial world is the same as it might look sexy for like the unicorn who over seven years built a billion dollar company, but it's an incredibly hard slog wrought with danger where the majority don't succeed. I mean, most statistics say nine out of 10 don't succeed. Um, and you have to risk, especially in the early stages, your friends and family's income that they give you to invest in your startup. You risk people's well-being because they're gonna leave their jobs to join you and put their families on the line. Um, it is, it's great that people are attracted to it. It's also something you need to go into with like your eyes wide open about what you're getting into and how challenging this will be. These aren't eight hour days where you get paid a nice salary and go home by 5 p.m. every day. The people I know building companies here are working 20 hour days for five, six, seven, ten 10 years in a row. Like this is, you have to have a level of passion and enthusiasm and dedication for what you're doing. And if you don't think you have that, you're kind of like, eh, I like the idea, but I don't know how hard I'd work for it. Probably wouldn't make it. <laughs> it's not for you. Like these people, it, it's crazy to do it. Because they doing. love this. They this love tech. what they're doing. They love either the impact of the technology, the technology itself, the market need for it, the problem they're solving. It literally is like what drives them as human beings. It's what gets them out of bed. Even when they're not at work, all they can typically think about is, is the work itself. Um, so there's definitely like, there's ways to be excited about being a Hollywood actor or actress, but the path to get there <laughs> might not be one that is equally as appealing as the end state. 
Um, then when it comes to like what makes a good entrepreneur, I actually think you, you change the question, you say what makes a good team of entrepreneurs? Mm. Because I don't know many startups or successful early stage companies that are just driven by the success of one person. Um, you need like you need someone who's who's good in front of people and can sell the vision and can fundraise and motivate people to join the company and maintain culture and be the cheerleader and at the same time you need someone who's financially obsessive who understands the numbers to an incredible level of degree is the one worried every time you're spending a little bit too much money on a dinner is like forecasting the business is modeling it and right. understanding the numbers behind it and typically those aren't the same people um, you need the operational enthusiast who like loves process, that they want to look at the supply chain and say, I can find 2% margin or efficiency improvement in this step or that step. And that's often a very different person than the cheerleader who loves like getting on stage and fundraising. Um, so one of the key parts about the Antler program we have here is we, we take entrepreneurs and then the first thing we do is help them build teams, help them understand who they are and what's missing from them that you need to correct somewhere else. Nobody's the perfect entrepreneur, but what you need is the perfect team. Um, and my team's an example of that. Like, I've hired a complete C-suite since I joined here a year ago, and they're all people who are better at their functions than I am. They are too. My CMO is better at brand and marketing and, pro and design uh, than I am. Our chief financial officer, better at finance and everything that comes with that role than I am. I know enough and have experienced enough to be able to manage that person and know what we need to achieve and set the benchmarks and the objectives and manage that process. But you hire people who are all better than you at what they do, and then you give them the environment that allows them to succeed. But would you say that today there is kind of a complete shift of power or even concentration of power to founders, to, to entrepreneurs, to, to the chief executive in the sense that we almost, as a society, we're infatuated by you know, the success of a company because of a founder, because of an entrepreneur, you know, that this person made a decision. I mean, if we look at Mark Zuckerberg, um, if we look at e even Travis Kalanick and, yeah. and, and Uber, there's this sort of sense of you know, that's the person that, 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 that made the, the thing happen. And also, we've seen this shift of power from you know, VC funds to, to entrepreneurs in the sense that you know, VC funds are, are the, the founders are able to negotiate better terms for themselves, VCs yeah. are out there to court them, uh, and it's sort of a founder-centric thing. So would you say that's kind of a public misconception, or would you say that's kind of yeah, the toxic I, think, I mean, I think there's parts. two things there. Yeah. One is like the lead singer is always more well-known in the band, <laughs> right? Like, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I was, kid in the 90s and so Guns N' Roses was my favorite band and everybody loved Axl Rose. Slash was kind of second behind that but like Duff on bass and like you probably don't even know who was on drums. You're too, no. I mean you're too young to even know Guns N' Roses but yeah. the lead singer is always the one getting the exposure is getting the most fanfare but that's one component. The band Guns N' Roses didn't exist with just a lead singer. It would have been pretty average music from that perspective and so they may celebrate a Travis or they may celebrate I don't know, Brian Chesky at Airbnb, whoever it is, there's a band. There's a, there's a team that gets that person there. They're, they're never a sole person responsible for the success um, of, of what they're doing. Um, and then the second piece I'd throw out there is like, I've been lucky enough to, um, to, to be exposed to some of these people who are highlighted in the press. Like I, I, re I reported to the founders uh, of Airbnb. I reported to Nate, one of the founders. 
Um, at Google, uh, the, our board for Project Chauffeur and Waymo included Larry and Sergey, like two pretty, pretty uh, kind of godlike figures in the tech world. Right. And all of those people I've been exposed to and worked with have been impressive, don't get me wrong. But none of them do you walk out of the room and say, I just met the Messiah who like, can touch everything and make it turn to gold. We're all human in the end. We all have our strengths and our weaknesses, and we need teams to correct those. No, that, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, I, I just want to take a quick shift from what we talked about in terms of uh, business development, but also to some of the ongoing trends in, in, in tech today, especially I think since our name is Policy Punchline, I would lo love to ask you some, yeah. some thoughts on regulation and stuff. So I've been reading this book, uh, Columbia Law Professor uh, Tim Wu's book, uh, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust uh, in the new, new Gilded Age, which is basically his entire thesis is about um, how concentration of economic power threatens you know, personal liberty, individual rights, and, and sort of erodes some of the fundamental values, uh, what our society is about. And um, if you look at some of the tech giants today, uh, sort of the, the, the culture that it has perpetrated, sometimes it, it feels like they have so much power, almost like uh, the Gilded Age back in the 1910s and 20s when Standard Oil and yeah. you know, J.D. Rockefeller and, and, and J.P. Morgan were there. So yeah. would love to hear your thoughts on, on you know, startups versus big tech giants, any, any sort of this, your thoughts on this kind of popular backlash uh, against the tech, tech world, I guess. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a pretty good question, not an easy one to answer. I think, I mean, first to like move fast and break things as, a, a na as like a, a mission or a value statement that came from Facebook, I think it's proven very clearly that like, A, it depends what you're breaking, but if you're, you're breaking democracy as an example of what's happened with Facebook, then moving fast probably doesn't justify breaking Western democracy as it exists for us today. And so I think, I think people have become clear that like, when it comes to move fast and breaking things about like, hey, we're gonna put line bike scooters around a city even though they're not legal and we're gonna play in the gray area, is slightly different to like taking what essentially was the town square of modern civilization and making it a corporate entity. Like where speech occurs today, debate occurs today, um, political information that's now occurring on things like Facebook or YouTube um, and the fact that algorithms, as an example, that control what you and I see when we jump into YouTube and what's recommended to us, uh, the impact and power of that and everything from elections through to kind of political causes or social causes is pretty significant. And I think people are far more acutely aware of that now. That the move fast and break things when it was like, what do you mean? Facebook's just a way for me to share photos of my kids and like, make people jealous that I flew in business class or whatever you're posting photos of. Exactly. But now you're starting to see, well, it's used for misinformation where you're actually telling people that voting is happening the day after it actually occurred on, segmenting the audience so that you can target the people you want to give that misinformation to, and that the, the marketplace, the town square, has no one managing it, and Facebook's kind of hands off with just a, hey, we, you know, we can't, we and can't they control what don't people really say. Want to do that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. that terrifies people. Um, as well as the progression of data. Data used to be, well, we want to know whether you like strawberry ice cream or vanilla, so that we can offer you that product. And that seemed pretty harmless. People were like, hey, I don't really care if they know that I need need to buy a new tire for my bike, and they're going to recommend tires for my bike on Facebook. That seems pretty benign. But what it's evolved to today is 
prediction of behavior. Add signaling, and, right. And yeah. signaling yeah. and moving you to do something that you may not have naturally done in ways that now it's about like, well, can I feed you misinformation about a political rival? Or can I tell you that this that global warming is a hoax because it betters my campaign or my business model or whatever it is? It, it started to be you can actually control human beings in right. a way that is not as benign as just offering you vanilla ice cream. And I think that rightfully so terrifies people. So do you see any solutions in this? I mean, it's a very grand question, but since, you know, we're standing here at New Lab at the sort of the, the frontier tech yeah. um, base. Do you see any, how tech could address that or will we need kind of a policy approach in terms of, a, oh, we need to break them up from, you know, Elizabeth Warren yeah. needs to come in. Or I mean, a lot of these big issues are like pendulums that occasionally just swung one way too far in one direction or the other. Like the reason why, let's use an Airbnb as an example, that they rolled out and allowed people to rent out their spare rooms or their apartments when they were vacant in a way that wasn't categorized in the regulatory environment. You had hotel structure of like, this is a hotel, and if you're a hotel, you have to collect this tax, and you have to follow these safety standards. But there was nothing from a regulatory perspective that specified, well, what if I just want to rent out my spare room, and how is that covered? And so the way tech has dealt with that gray area is just to say, we're going to move into it. We're going to roll out this business. We're just going to do it like move fast and break things. We're just gonna actually push forward despite the fact that it may not be crystal clear from a regulatory perspective. Um, and the reason why they behave in that way is because policy is so slow to adapt, right? If, if, if you quickly could surface the issue of Uber and decide how it's gonna be handled and get that all wrapped up in six months and suddenly you know as, a as Uber whether you're legal or not, but the reality is it takes years and it's complex process and it often doesn't hit the ideal mark of, of the solutions needed. And so that pendulum means people are like, well, we're not gonna wait around for regulatory to catch up to technology, which moves at such an incredible pace. We're just gonna keep running. When the reality is somewhere in the middle it's, it is the solution, which is that the policy world needs to be able to adapt and move quickly to the changing landscape of technology and its, its use cases. And the entrepreneurial world, the startup world, whether you call it Silicon Valley, but really it's globally how startups operate, is that move fast and break things I don't think is valid anymore. Is that no company is like, we're just gonna behave in this way until regulatory catches up. Or it's certainly become more and more difficult and scrutinized to do that. Maybe the policymakers should move fast and break things. Maybe we'll just break up Facebook and see how it goes and then see, see if that's a valid approach or... or, or yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is, it's looking at how does, the, how does that policy system, the engine, like think of it as a company and you're saying we're too slow to adapt to the market. The market tells us it needs something new and we're not quick enough to create that. Now, if you're Johnson & Johnson, you're like, oops, everybody wanted uh, healthy juices or vegan this or soap that doesn't involve animal testing. If you suddenly were in a board meeting and you're like, it took us five years to figure that out, you'd be thinking, well, how do we improve this system? How do we figure out what people want and actually act on it quicker? So a political so, system is kind of... Right. So how does the government and policy broken, yeah. take that same challenge of it took us 10 years to realize people wanted soap that wasn't animal tested? <laughs> how could we, how could we be, be closer yeah. to that? I mean, look at autonomous vehicles. Like, do you think that we're handling the change there the way we should? Is it speedy enough? Is the regulatory supporting the evolution of technology? Quantum computing. China's invested what, 100x what the US has in the development of quantum computers? 
is the U.S. government act moving quickly enough with these insights into new technology and how disruptive they will be to create policy, to fund it, to support it, to attract it? Um, or are we always behind the eight ball? And we're like, oh, it turns out e-cigarettes are terrible for people. We got to catch up on that one. How, and and I, certainly none of this is me with experience in this world saying, oh, it's really easy. But that's the reality is that somehow both the startup community needs to be less focused on just move fast and break things and ignoring kind of the regulatory or policy environment. And in the same breath, the policy world needs to be able to figure out how to move quickly with the evolution of technology. Because uh, you were mentioning how the pendulum sort of swings, you know, sometimes towards negative, sometimes towards the positive, and, and, and I, I wanted to bring this uh, thought to you to hear a thought on. So, so the CEO of Salesforce, uh, Mark Benioff, recently wrote a New York Times op-ed that basically sort of stated that we need a new type of capitalism that, you know, values more of social benefits. And he's sort of only one of the many executives and scholars who have sort of come out and, you know, talked about the issues related to our economic system. and. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on tech's uh, role and tech's contribution to our society at large. Because, uh, you know, on one hand, we're seeing wonderful tech innovations uh, that you know improve human health, that you know help us get to places better or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, we see the concentration of power. We see some of the unethical tech innovations. We see how AI could be abused uh, in, in various ways. Mm -hmm. Same for many other you know uh, biotech um, innovations. So. How how would you kind of overall categorize or generalize tech's contribution to our society? Are you an optimist, pessimist? Pessimist? Um, it's such a big question. Yeah. All mush into that one. No, I mean, I think there's a couple. Yeah. I think certainly the ideal is they call it like double bottom line investing, which is it's both profitable and profitable or impactful in a positive way for society in general. Exactly. And there's a lot more people certainly focused on those type of opportunities and investments. But in the end, like, it's a pretty significant shift to change how capitalism works. So I think it's more interesting to think about, well, how do you incentivize the capitalist, capitalistic engine to focus on things that are positive for the world uh, and positive to society, and certainly not negative in that area. Um, so it is an interesting question of like, how do you, how do you motivate, motivate the right type of entrepreneurs to build the right type of companies in the right type of areas? And there's certainly examples of that um, through government grants, government programs, funneling, funneling tax breaks to certain endeavors, like trying to push people to work on challenges that are, are important to the planet. Um, the second piece is technology and like whether it's good or evil. And I think it's, you know, you can dig iron out of the ground and you can create steel and you can make a sword out of that or you can make like a protective device that keeps your family safe or a plate to eat off like but the technology is still making steel so it's really not the technology whether it's good or bad and ai is a fantastic example quantum computing is a fa fantastic example it has both incredibly positive applications and potential and incredibly terrifying and negative potential, right? Like quantum computing can solve some of the biggest uh, and most challenging medical questions of our generation in a fraction of the time it would take us today through classical computing, but it can also be used for breaking every password that's ever been created. Like cryptography goes away in theory with quantum yeah. computers. Both pretty scary, both still steal and what you create from steel, right? Um, and so an example, the EDC here, the Economic Development Corporation in New York, which is a government body, 
they just fu um, finished an RFP where they are doing a $7 million grant over three years to create an AI center for good in New York that's focused on how do you utilize the technology of AI for positive benefits overall. Um, we did our urban tech studio here in here at New Lab, and that deployed sensors on lampposts around um, Brooklyn that collected data that was then shared with the government to help them inform their decisions around urban planning. When you close a street, this is what happens to traffic, this is what happens to, to use of bikes and Ubers and bus routes, and this is, this is how your decisions actually impact the quality of life. Now that same sensor, in theory, you could rejigger that technology and use it for tracking people in a way that's negative in China, creating a merit system on, on pe the population and predicting or deciding who's a good person and who's a bad. Exactly the same technology. So it's not necessarily the debate of like, is technology good or evil? It's how is it used, how is it managed, how are the applications of it incentivized and governed? So we could potentially make the argument that, you know, it's a lot about the social and political institutions that this technology is sort of situates itself in. in and I mean, the entrepreneurs aren't like innocent in this either. I guess it's just the point that like technology as a thing is not, yeah, that's doesn't a have intent. That, it's that just construct like, itself, right? Yeah, like machine learning <laughs> is machine learning. It's, a, it's an approach, a, a technology that can be used to solve Parkinson's disease or to create the best bomb ever. Like it's, of course. It, it just, it's not the technology that necessarily is the dangerous component. It's how it's managed, how it's used, and how people are incentivized to apply that technology. So what if uh, I played devil's advocate and, and, and just say, let's get rid of a lot of some of the technology since we don't know if good or bad actors are, are gonna use it, or since we don't know the kind of the effect on people, for example, social media, right? What if I have a, I always uh, joke about this with my friends, like what, what if I could hit a button and any, something disappears in, in, in the world, what would it be? It would probably be Facebook or social media. Because yeah. I, I, I would make the argument that it has a overall net negative effect on people's happiness. And, and you were just showing me light phone number two, which mm. is the, I mean, I'll let you introduce it, but I think, um, shouldn't the world be a heavier place if we have no social media, regardless how people use this technology or, yeah. or this, this thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you, if you remove Facebook overnight, there's that movie right now where the Beatles that don't exist, the like, guy wakes <laughs> up and the Beatles are gone. So like, you wake up and Facebook's gone. Or any social media. Like, this right. con concept is gone. Uh, but don't you think something would spring up? Like It's kind of, I don't know if... Sorry. Oh, that was um, <laughs> I don't know if blaming Facebook necessarily is, is the right move because wouldn't there just be a social network that would pop up to replace yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So I, I actually personally don't think you know, getting rid of Facebook itself would be a, be a good idea. But what if I say social media as a concept was never, it was never, never in anybody's, invented. it was never invented, you know? Yeah. Or we, if we go back to hunter-gatherers time when, when uh, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people write about, I mean, what is the definition of human progress? How do you measure it? How do you see the... The progression. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, um, so the question being like, how do you measure human progress? Or, or yeah, or even if uh, you think we would be a better off society without a lot of those tech. To me, it is that pendulum of like, I think you need the right checks and balances in place for how technology is utilized um, and how it's deployed, how big things can get, uh, how much of an impact things can have on society. But to just say like, 
AI is banned, I don't think ends up having a positive impact overall on society. It's like saying when when steel was first produced as a material that we're going to ban it because it can create swords or bullets or whatever it else is. Well, lead is in bullets, I guess. But, but you could make the argument that you know fundamentally AI is very very different. The nature of AI, how it will you know lead to whether it's job loss out because of the automation or whether it you know the, the sort of power it could the negative effect can be exponentially maxed. Out. Yeah, you know, magnified. And I guess I'm saying if you don't agree that the best thing to do is just ban technology, like India bans self-driving cars, the only country that's done it so far because they said it's gonna it's gonna eliminate jobs. Or China bans crypto, or whatever things right. like that. Yeah. So, yeah. is that the, does that actually end up being the right thing to do for India, or do you say? We can roll uh, autonomous vehicle technology out first in trucking because it's only going to be an L4 solution that keeps the truck driver in the truck so it maintains employment. And for every self-driving car that's approved, the company needs to show they've hired another job in another segment that is a similar pay and skill set. I, I don't know the exact piece, but is there a better approach than just throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Like you would think as a civilization, like we're capable of both utilizing the incredible inventions of our time, the incredible technology and potential these things have, without just throwing up our, arm, our arms in the air and being like, eh, there's some negative implications and applications for this, let's just throw it all out. Because where would we be in a significant amount of kind of human endeavors? Like going from horse to the automobile, like there were people who made a living off horseshoes who suddenly lost their way, I'm sure, as a result of, of the automobile. But it's still the advancement, and typically that advancement has led to a long-term positive gain for society. But I understand the pessimism for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I read the newspaper like everybody each morning, and I walk to work feeling pretty bad about where <laughs> things are headed, the state of the environment, um, state of politics, the state of freedom of speech. And then I get here, and there's 137 companies, 750 people spending ridiculous amounts of hours per day trying to build something that all of which I see as being very positive to the planet. Like my optimism around the future of society around the planet is, is thi uh, these people, are the entrepreneurs here. Um, and I feel a little bit of like satisfaction and pride that I'm helping them along the way, but more so a lot of guilt that I'm not one of them. Like they are actually out there figuring out how to clean the oceans or patch the hole in the ozone layer or lower the carbon footprint of whatever it is that we do day to day or find better ways to provide clean water to cities in India. Like all of these people are working hard to, to improve our future. Um, and, I, and all of that involves technology. So to tell them all they have to stop because there's also someone somewhere who's gonna use that technology in a negative way Probably not the best outcome. That's that's a, that's a wonderful argument. Emmanuel Kant would definitely agree with you. You know, on the on, on the way of human progress, where you know constantly struggling and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, so I have the the recent uh, September October issue of MIT Tech Review with me, and it's the the title of the issue. It's old age is over. Uh, you know, it's basically saying you know aging is after all a chemical sort of process, which can theoretically be. Uh, reversed and, and you know besides the the tackling longevity there's also other frontier tech innovations that are happening we mentioned uh, quantum computing many many times and Google recently had this you know huge release and, and also PR fight with uh, with IBM about quantum computing and all that stuff so 
I would love to hear your thoughts on some of the emerging tech that you are currently watching, uh, your thoughts on them and how their impacts on our society will be, yeah. In regards to longevity? No, 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 I mean, it doesn't have to be specific. Those are just some of the examples oh. I, was, I was just saying. But, um, but I, I remember you telling me a lot about quantum uh, computing, which yeah. I think could be a topical uh, discussion given what happened recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many. So certainly, like, we've got Occam's Razor here as an example. Katarina's from Germany, the founder of the company there. Um, they're funded by Michael J. Fox and Sergey Brin, I believe. Um, and they've focused on developing uh, essentially um, an AI or machine learning scientist and researcher that can ingest and understand uh, every piece of research created around the world around Parkinson's disease. And they're funded to focus on Parkinson's. But what it does is it develops a consistent knowledge graph globally that researchers can use that says, this is everything we already know about Parkinson's. That if you walked into a lab and said, I want to start making an impact on Parkinson's, instead of starting at ground zero and saying like, well, where do we start? I don't know anything about the disease. You could start with a globally consistent kind of knowledge graph and understanding of this is what's already done. And not only that, that the system provides recommendations and these are the hypotheses and the concepts that need to be tested to continue to make progress towards a cure. Um, and so that's an example where kind of AI and machine learning is tarnished as having massive potentially negative impact on the world, but also an example where it's having a pretty substantial positive impact. And I get excited about what Katerina and the team are doing there uh, at Occam's Razor because if you can do that around one disease, how, you can apply that across any. Like that can be for cancer, it can be for diabetes, it can be for Parkinson's, it can be for anything. Um, and so that's certainly one of the companies we've been pretty thrilled to have here. Um, we have Varian Bio here that came out of Lux Capital. Um, the team there, uh, another, another company here with a, a female founder and CEO, um, she are, they're studying essentially families around the world with significant genetic, interesting genetic anomalies. So families that have four times the bone density of the average human, um, families that can hold their breath for 15 to 20 minutes due to generations of fishing and kind of training in that regard. Um, families that have 10% of the pain receptors of the typical human and so they don't experience pain in the same way that you and I do. And they're looking at understanding those families and those unique characteristics to figure out whether you can develop therapeutics and medication to help uh, people in the opposite segment. So if you have bone density that's one-fourth of the average human, how can they utilize what they learn from those families to correct that? Um, so certainly thrilled to have people like that uh, developing solutions here. In quantum, we have John Levy and Seek. Um, they, John came out of Hyperus, uh, and those guys are developing both the quantum computing processing chips but also the error correction chips in the same stack, which I'm definitely no expert, but one of the challenges is quantum computers are so fast that they inevitably hit an error incredibly quickly. Statistically, they're gonna hit an error at a certain rate. And so you have to be able to clear that error, correct that error, and allow it to continue to process. But you're processing at Kelvin levels of temperature, like it's incredibly cold, the environment that you have quantum computing processors in. And to clear the errors, you're typically bringing it up to room temperature if you use classical computers to clear the errors. And so what they're doing is focused on developing both processing, quantum computer processing chips, as well as the error correction chips in the same stack at the same temperature, just making it more efficient uh, for quantum computers to work. And it comes back to that kind of steel metaphor of quantum computers to me can either destroy every aspect of security and privacy on the planet, 
or they can mean we can tackle some of the most difficult questions and medical challenges in a fraction of the time. Um, and so we're certainly bullish and enthusiastic to see uh, how that evolves. It's probably the first inning for quantum. We're by no means along the way, but hopefully we start to see application-specific approaches. That sounds uh, amazing. Um, um, yeah. Do you have uh, a contrarian opinion that you hold but many others might disagree with? Oh, wow. Just uh, in general? Just uh, in general, any contrarian view? No, I mean, I think... I think the interesting you speak part about those things with such eloquence, and I was just uh, yeah. I think it's probably more about how I, like I have a significant amount of respect for something that people consider pretty simple, which is that I look the way I operate companies is with a significant amount of transparency and clarity around roles and objectives that everybody knows what they need to achieve each quarter and how it's going to be measured. And I've picked this all up just through years of being around great companies and great leaders. Um, but it's not something, if we come back to our early discussion on how do I feel comfortable around technologists and people with PhDs in, in things that I can only barely understand, um, is over time I've gained more and more respect for that thing I do and that thing I focus on and, and require. Um, as I've watched people who don't actually respect it as much um, and seen it destroy companies. Like, I don't think companies necessarily always fail because of bad product vision or the wrong market fit. I actually think it's leadership and the simplicity of like how is a company operating. Um, it's like being in the army. Like everybody has a clear role. They understand what they need to do and what they need to achieve. And one weakness in that link, and and it breaks. Um, and so that's I built just uh, 20 years of experience of those little insights and those little pieces that um, a lot of people I think probably find pretty simple. Um, pretty unnecessary and are, are easily overlooked um, in the hectic pace of day-to-day decision-making. We just decide, oh, don't worry about that process or that step or that clarity or communicating and updating so-and-so. But those are the like holes in the dam that eventually break it. To- totally makes sense. Uh, uh, t- I, before we wrap up our, our show, there's just one last question I want to ask you. So the name of our podcast is uh, Policy Punchline. So I really have to ask you at the end of our show what what's the punchline here for new lab for tech and society for frontier innovations uh, for policy for anything yeah i mean i think the punchline for your audience is like the optimi- what makes us optimistic about the future is you is <laughs> thank like, you thank <laughs> you I, I, yeah. I, I mean what what thrills us what thrills david and scott and myself to be able to open and operate and and grow something like new lab is that it gives a home for the next generation of entrepreneurs and technologists, the next piece of research and IP coming out of academia, the next person who's quitting their job at Twitter to build a company um, for something that's more meaningful than what they've been doing. Um, the punchline is that like that's the mantle. We're handing on a baton. You need to take it and <laughs> run with it. Um, and then apply to new lab as, as, the, as, they, as they go yeah. through the journey. Yeah. yeah, and there's places like <laughs> ours, there's places around the world that are here to support you, um, to understand your visions and your missions, um, and do what we can to make sure your chance of success is stronger. I mean, it's just truly amazing how, how what an operation you guys have here. Like, oh, I, I appreciate that. I, I'm so starstruck when I, when I see I feel like it's like... <laughs> Superman trying to basically <laughs> trying to run this place. It's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I know you that. you must be busy. So yeah, thank you so much for for having this interview with no us, worries. Sean. Thanks really for coming. It. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
And, and this concludes this episode of uh, Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and then visit us on policypunchline.com. That was our interview with uh, New Lab CEO, Sean. Um, wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.